a war like that will turn good men bad and bad men evil. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Mark Wales is a veteran of the Special Air Service Regiment. He served in the Australian Army for 16 years, six of those with the SAS. I first spoke with Mark about his military service and highlights of his post-army career in Season 2. Number 28, Mark Wales. All I wanted for me was to come home. I think they just wanted to make sure their brother came back in one piece. Since then, Mark has written his memoir, Survivor, Life in the SAS. This is a deeply revealing memoir, action-packed and a considered reflection on events in Afghanistan. It's an important book for the soldier's perspective it gives into special operations in Australia's longest war, a response to the 2020 Brereton Report into alleged war crimes. I am Mark's publisher and editor of the book. I invited him to the Pam McMillan Audio Studio to talk more with me about his time in the military. Mark, welcome back to Life on the Line. Great to be back. Great to be back in Sydney as well. Yes, indeed. We signed your book agreement, had a handshake, and then days later, lockdown. Lockdown. And actually, I was just walking past as well a cafe downstairs where we had met, you know, I think in 2017. It's been a fun journey from my perspective as well, and I uh, look forward to sharing with some of our listeners today some more insights and stories, and shamelessly going to entice them to go out there and buy the book. Exactly. Before we tackle some of the bigger questions that Survivor addresses, though, I thought we could add a bit back to that original podcast chat many people listening to this will have heard already. You don't hide anything in this memoir. There are some new stories there from the old days, a lot of new stuff into the SAS. You reveal a lot of new things. But this also includes all your fuck-ups. Let's talk about that infamous ambush you led while at the Royal Military College, Duntroon. There was one, and just stepping back when I was thinking about writing the book, I was at one point I remember thinking, oh goodness, I'm actually, to make this half decent, I'm actually going to have to reveal parts of my story that I don't want, I'd rather not talk about, because without that, you don't have a complete picture of your protagonist. And I think it makes a protagonist a lot less relatable if they just give you all their highlights, you know what I mean? And then you've got a story which doesn't really show some of the trips that people take on the journeys that we have, because we all know what happens, but... Oh, it's just... just a written version of our Instagram highlights reel then. It's not real. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I was in a cold sweat over, over writing some of the things, even from my childhood. I'm like, I really don't want to talk about this, but I feel like it's going to be an important part of the story. And so I did that. And then in the military, I talk about some of those experiences I had when I was training that I just remember being very embarrassing where you I tried to do something well and just could not quite pull it off and yeah one of them was an ambush I did in in, I think second class at RMC and I was like oh I've definitely got this I'll I'll be able to do a good ambush and you know it'll all count towards being a good cadet and I'll get promoted and then um I only (laughs) only finished about half my ambush orders because they're quite detailed and hard to write and then basically when I was presenting I had to wing it through the second half of my ambush orders and you really don't want to do that it's not good for a successful ambush 
Yeah, and it was basically a mess. It was, uh, you know, enemy quarters when we were setting up and we all got attacked and uh, it was a total fail. So I talk about that in the book and just kind of how that felt as a cadet that wanted to go to SAS. Yeah, lessons of preparation <laughs> exactly. going awry. And you're right, you don't hold back on certain things in your childhood. I'm just going to say the words brothel scene and leave people to discover <laughs> more from there. But miraculously, you pass Advern RMC and become a junior officer and you see some early deployments in Timor and the Solomon Islands and you always have that SAS selection goal in mind. But even in the book, you add some depth to, although Afghanistan is the peak of your service, you add some interesting insight into Timor, the work you're doing with the locals there, to some casual chats at Junction Point Alpha with Angus Campbell. I was lucky to get to East Timor in... 2001, just after September 11. We'd been trained to deploy that year, went to East Timor. Angus Campbell was the commanding officer of Turaria, and he took the time to explain the strategy behind the deployment, how he'd set the troops up around the country and what he was targeting. And he talked at length about the section I was at, which was Junction Point Alpha. Um, and he talked about how important that was and how close it was to the Indonesian military and, and to these returnees that were coming from camps in, in West Timor, having been evicted from East Timor and going home for Easter. And I remember processing them as a young person and just seeing the condition they were in. It was the first time I thought, oh, wow, this is not, the way we live is not the way everyone else lives in the world. There's actually some really hard done by people. And that was, I felt like that was quite a formative experience. But you also then get to pick the brains of a senior officer and at the time a senior officer still who has also been in the SAS and like that mm. is a tangible flesh and blood connection to your dream career as mm. well. He had served as a squadron commander. And so I remember talking to him about it and we all wanted to know about it, but we never quite had the courage to, to ask too much about it. But I remember him talking about the SAS and we were like, why did you kind of step out of that stream? And he goes, you know, well, it was a bit of a menagerie by the time I left. I kind of remember putting that comment away as thinking, oh, that's unusual. And then when I got there later, I'm like, oh, no, this is what a menagerie is. It's like, you know, a bunch of kind of alpha males competing for, uh, you know, top soldier and top spot. He had a lot of really good insights that kind of not surprised me, but I thought he was quite a wise guy. He talked about the impact of war fighting. He goes, this is not something you ever want to do. You don't ever want to be involved in a war. It, it brings nothing but misery. And I was like, that's it's a very different line that a lot of military people had said pre uh you know, September 11th. And that would have been formative just because these days, and obviously the structure of selection and special forces, all that's merging and changing as we speak. But at the time you were looking at doing it, there weren't lots of podcasts and books about it. They had no. kept the genie in the bottle no. back then. So that was your only way to get exposure. It was. It was very limited. And people didn't write books then. I remember when Bravo 20 came out, it was like the first time I'd seen a book really on the SAS that was a, a memoir as such. And that was in 1993. I'd watched, there was an SAS like parachute demonstration in Perth and I ran about two kilometres to try and find the soldier that had fallen down and parachuted down. But anyway, it, it was hard to get a hold of, of uh, information about the unit. But then you finally find yourself there in Wonderland living the dream and also experiencing the nightmare of what is SAS <laughs> selection. And we talked about some of that last time, but it's the longest chapter in the book, actually, SAS yeah, selection. it is. One of the many new stories you share is with a certain directing staff member, DS, pretending to be a French rebel commander and makes you undertake all sorts of tasks and gives you an interesting meal at the uh, end of the day. Can you recount that story? Yeah, we're in the final phase. It was called uh, Lucky Dip. And basically, you cut into teams of about you know six eight people they give you these tasks in role-playing scenarios that are really hard to achieve so they're like well you've got to take this uh, you know rebel commander's wife you need to escort her 30 you know however far it is to the next camp and you've got five hours to do it and so you'll spend all night trying to move someone who's being difficult and there's all these other obstacles thrown in while you're trying to do it and the complicating factor is no one's eaten or slept or rest and so we had this french-speaking 
rebel commander that was uh, putting us through our paces, getting us to move a boat to his campsite through the bush. It was just horrendous. And eventually we got there and, and we hadn't eaten for two and a half days. And the meal was literally a, a boiled kind of pig's head um, without the, you know, it was just... Uh, but we, you know, we ate it because we were starving. We were absolutely starving. And I actually didn't mention this in the book, but the French-speaking guerrilla commander was Blaine Didams. I don't think I mentioned that in the book. No, you didn't. Was, That's news to me. Yeah, and he obviously he was killed in action in 2012. I remember him clearly on the selection course, and he was a funny guy, real character, and obviously was terrible that he was killed all those years later. Well, you didn't reveal that tragic aspect in the book, but you do describe this stuff really well, including, I remember gagging, reading the hog's head <laughs> scene, because it's just the texture. Oh, you can you write it so I can taste it. Look, jumping ahead, as mentioned, sort of the Middle East is the pinnacle of your service, and you cover that in so much depth in the book, and I don't want to strip too much away from that because I want very biasly people out there to go and buy it. To loosely cover things, after some personal security work in Iraq and Afghanistan, you have your first full deployment to Afghanistan as a troop commander in 2007. We spoke about this trip last time on this show, including the battle in the Chora Valley where mm. Sergeant Matthew Locke, MG, lost his life. Today, I want to touch on a different contact, a different experience in that tour. A rather memorable morning you had in Dera Wood. It starts with a patrol car stuck in the Hellman River with the bad guys closing in. We were going to Darawood because it hadn't really been navigated in the last 12 months, really, by coalition forces. The Brits were doing a clearance near uh, Musakala, not far away. And basically, they wanted us to try and tie up the rear by having a look at what was in that valley. Long story short, we tried to cross the Hellman River in one period of darkness, leaving from Camp Russell, going all the way to Darawood and then crossing that river, which is, you know, it's a pretty substantial waterway. It's like 100 to 200 metres wide in some parts. And it's hard to get across, and we knew there were enemy in that area. We sent the first couple of cars across in the very late dawn, and one of the cars got bogged, and I just remember the tension of kind of being in, I was in a basically fire support position looking over the river. There were enemy coming towards us. We were trying to get the car out. We didn't want to open up because we knew that would start the battle. And we basically just got this car out just as first light was coming and it initiated a, a fairly major battle. And that was the first day of a two-week operation in that area. And there was a lot of senior commanders that had come in there and had organized all the local fighters. So they're very motivated, had all their weapons out when we were keen to fight. So it was, it was a big couple of weeks. Very action-packed and a lot of names have been changed or obscured or nicknames yeah. only for mm. protected identity security reasons. Although there are insights into a few well-recognizable names such as Sean McCarthy, who was yep. fighting alongside you that trip. So Sean McCarthy was in my headquarters team. Young guy, smart, hardworking, was not qualified as an SAS operator, but ended up fighting in close quarters, really, in uh, the first large contact arena in Chora where Matthew Locke was killed and actually won a commendation for bravery for his actions there and basically helping mark our forward line of troops. He did that for snipers and that helped kind of free up one of our flanks. So yeah, really brave and then tragically killed, I think, on his next tour with Harry Moffat and those guys. By no idea. Well, jumping ahead to 2010, Mark, it's your fourth full deployment to Afghanistan, this time as the XO of one squadron. A lot has changed in these few years. Land vehicles to fly into a target down to the type of mission you guys are more commonly engaged in. Yeah, it had changed fairly dramatically. There was basically the surge of US troops into theatre from 2009. US president said, right, we're going to send, you know, I think it was 30,000 troops. We're going to give them 18 months, try and stabilise as much as we can and train up the Afghan army and, and then off we go. So we had rotary wing packages for Blackhawks to Apache helicopters we could use to fly into target areas. 
it changed the way we did operations a lot. We were able to surprise the enemy. We were able to not have to uh, go basically endure IEDs a lot. We still did vehicle stuff, but we leaned heavily on rotary assets because of the surprise and the maneuverability and all that. Then it became a strong targeting focus, basically, in the missions. Whereas in the years where I'd first been there, it was very uh, reconnaissance focused, very much, you know, you don't find out what's in these valleys. We don't know. There could be contact, of course, but it's not what we're seeking necessarily. So, yeah, it changed a lot. It was far more aggressive in the later years. How do you then also witness, besides those specific tactics, procedures you're using to execute those objectives, the actual objectives, the war campaign strategy on that more mm. macro level, that evolved greatly over your time yeah. with the regiment. How did you see that strategy evolve? We were very much, by 2010, in the counterinsurgency space. And it was very much protect the population and SAS, SOTG, you're going to do the hard side of counterinsurgency, which is targeting the force commanders that will not be placated or turned or cooperate. The issue with that is the strategy wasn't resourced effectively and everyone could see like this is not something that's going to work necessarily because it's just not, I don't think countries should be involved in that type of strategy. You've gone down the wrong path completely. And I think the canary in the coal mine was McChrystal being fired. He came in to implement all these coin strategies there was a disagreement or, you know, expose, obviously, with uh, Rolling Stone. He was fired by the president. That, to me, was the first sign that something wasn't right. There was a divide between the, the aims of the civilian leadership and the military leadership. And that was a real kind of warning shot. But you also, I guess, and I don't want to get into the quagmire of the actual politics there, but politics is also an unavoidable component of it where you have a change from President George W. Bush to President Barack Obama, very different uh, views of the war and mm. strategy. Same here from Prime Minister Howard to Rudd Gillard, Rudd Abbott. Like we, yeah. had, we all had multiple changes of leadership and government parties leading yeah. this as well, and that we've also impacted things. Mm. I found this out later that the military in the US was really trying to shape the policy decisions around Afghanistan, and it's not... It's not necessarily the right thing because you've got this elected leader who's trying to make the right decision for the country, but who's kind of being boxed in quite a bit by the military. And that's that's some of what I think preceded the, the firing of McChrystal. That part's quite interesting because it drove the next decade in Afghanistan. And yeah, I think I was watching that unfold in 2009, 2010, wondering what's our part in all this going to be. And were you having conversations with your colleagues to that effect, or was this just your own internal deliberations? Not really. It's not something you can bring up because you, you're there and you're going to be doing the fighting. So you don't sit there going, oh, that's interesting that now this is you know, not going to work or this is a bad idea. You just got to try and do your best with what you've got. And then do a post-mortem after and the fact. Then, and then exactly. Your book, Survivor, doesn't just look at this strategic level and do this sort of post-mortem critical analysis. It's also deeply personal. You write about your own demons, and then you also turn your eye external, and that includes some of the burnout and moral fatigue you're watching sweep across the regiment. Yeah, this is the one of the hardest bits of the book for me, because I had to talk about my own experience with arriving there, working hard, being exposed to trauma and having some PTSD and depression arise from that, and then having to combat it and kind of suppress it almost a little bit for years to try and keep supporting the unit. So that was kind of a bit of a struggle on its own. But I was also watching other people to see if other people were encountering the same issues because it wasn't something that was broadly discussed. And when it had been talked about in the past, it was always in, it was always the couple of classic cases of guys kind of coming off the rails psychologically that people would talk about. But it was a great fear that I had done all that work and would now be not able to do any more operations just because I'd, I'd had a, you know, a rough tour or something. So that was a hard thing to write about, I think. It was... 
very personal. And I'm kind of glad I put it in there because it shows what I'm trying to say is like this afflicts even highly trained soldiers. It's not something that is rare. It does happen quite a bit, but it's totally manageable. It's a normal thing. You can get through it and come out the other side even better in some cases. And so that was kind of why I wrote about it. But I picked up some of the cues of that happening to other people in the unit too. We were just tired. We've just been going back and forth a lot. And yeah. And that's what we're seeing in public discourse on this subject as a reaction to the Brereton report, say, yeah. where people like yourself are speaking up and saying this did not happen in a vacuum. There's a context to this, these allegations. This is the part that frustrated me quite a bit when I heard about the Brereton report is they're saying, all right, we've got this, these allegations, all this is, has happened. There's been this unit involved and it just seemed like there was not much focus at all on the 12 years that had preceded it because some of the seeds of that issue were planted a long time ago. And it, you know, I can't point it and say that's exactly what caused this issue because clearly if there's been someone who's done the wrong thing criminally, it needs to be prosecuted. But we owe a lot to ourselves to understand how we got to that point um, when it comes to policy decisions, how we fight as a military, how we treat our soldiers, how we care for them mentally as well like all that's a factor in this and i just don't feel like that's been examined much at all and i hope that what i've contributed in the book will help people who are there like yourself giving that sort of perspective and feedback that's where we can learn the most from i kind of put the pub test on this if you ask a lot of australians about this they'll go well yeah there's of course there's been something happening you sent them to war for x number of years eventually something will happen and that was kind of one of my points is you know a war like that will turn good men bad and bad men evil in some ways, even the best. So it just brings out the worst in, in humans. And the longer you leave people there, the higher the probability somehow oh, this is going to happen. And we won't go into this, but you are quite even and fair in your assessments of that. And you are your own biggest critic in that. And you have identified moments where you felt your own moral compass slipping and what that means and what that translated to. And I don't want to dive into that because I think it's um, very well done in the book. Again, sales pitch, obviously, but it's an important, you've done a self-examination and you're using yourself, I suppose, to say, hey, here's my own self-reflection and here's what that can represent on behalf of many. Mm. The issue I was talking about, even when it comes to drinking or disciplinary lapses, they only look small at the time when you hold them up against long-term deployments. It can have big impacts on culture later on because that's the new standard. Once you do that, that's the new standard and that then gets altered down the track. So it's an important one for, for leaders, that creep that can occur. Well, speaking of pub test and the drinking, the Fat Lady's Arms, the Special Forces Bar, has received a fair bit of press this year. But even at the time, it was the worst kept secret in <laughs> Afghanistan. And I suppose, like you talk about in the book, there's pictures. You said just then it feels low at the time, but I guess with the benefit of hindsight, how do you think these kind of drinking and shenanigans might have had an effect on morale? I think it was a... Uh... A necessary part of the deployment. I don't think you can ask young men and women to go away and do that type of work and not give them the trust, basically, to be able to go on and drink and uh, have a facility where they essentially are decompressing. The government officials and military officials have to give the official line, which is that was not the right thing to do. But I mean, come on, most Australians look at that and go, yeah, you're asking him to go and kill and be killed. Like, give him, you know, let him have that. I think the issue is that some of the more severe cultural issues might have taken root around that culture. It might have been a bit of an incubator, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, that's just my view on it. I drank there a lot. I loved it. I thought it was a great, it was a great facility. We had a great, every time I went there, I had a great time. And it was a perfect chance to talk to your mates about everything that had happened. It was a key part of how we worked together as a team and how we bonded as a team. So 
Well, Mark, you're not just a Special Forces veteran breaking all the rules of secrecy to put yourself out there, and that's starting a few years ago on, say, Australian Survivor, to now writing your memoir. You're writing a memoir post-IGADF, the first military memoir published post-Bereton report into alleged war crimes that really tackles the issues of the report to some degree. How do you feel about that? When I first started writing it, I thought the IGADF was going to come out a lot earlier than it did. I think it kept getting pushed back quite a lot, so... The book will come out uh, at a time when this is a a hotly contested topic. I'm glad there's another viewpoint in there because you won't get anyone from the military talking about this that was at kind of my level or or less kind of junior than me, I guess, because people just don't want to do it. And it it has a cost too. If you're going to talk about this, you know, you won't have links back to the unit. You won't, you know, it could affect friendships. There's all sorts of things it could affect. So it's not without risk, but I also thought it was... I just thought it was a story worth telling. And I think it was an important piece of context that people are going to appreciate. How did you find then the process of actually writing the book, putting it all to paper? Yeah, it was it was good fun. I think um, I went away and did a lot of homework on storytelling and you know how to write and the way stories traditionally are structured. And all that was good because I knew if I was researching that and I was excited about it, then I knew I was going to be excited about the book. So it's kind of a, it's an important process for me to go through because then I kind of have a critical mass of interest and then I can go write. And I did, you gave me a deadline for the manuscript and I just reverse engineered the word count per day. And just, I think I was doing about a thousand words a day, five days a week, roughly. Oh, you sent me a spreadsheet. Okay, so this is my manuscript (laughs) delivery deadline in my contract. Here is my spreadsheet of this, 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 this. It was great. It was an editor's dream. Yeah, I just didn't want to fall into that trap of rolling, you know, missing of deadlines. I think it's important that you just get it done and that longer doesn't always equal better. I think think you've just got to get the story down and... Because then the editing took, I mean, it t- took like a year, right? Like the editing took a long time. So that's where I think well, the magic really happens when you polish it up. Well, you were very military, very on time, which <laughs> exactly. pleased me. But yeah, there's a lot that goes into a book from multiple rounds of do one pass of editing, then you drill down to the line level and proofreads and all that stuff. There's a lot of layers to it. And I guess I wanted to ask that because also you haven't sat down with a ghostwriter and you know worked on that. This is all entirely in your own words, and you have a very powerful writing voice, and it's the first time you've really sat down and written something, to the best of my knowledge, and it was just a really impressive feat that people reading this are getting it directly from you. It's not filtered. Yes, we've done edits, but that's all a partnership collaboration effort, but it's entirely your words on the page, and that's really powerful. I really wanted to do my own version of it. I thought it was really important. It was important that I guess train myself a little bit to do it. And I was surprised at just how deep that craft is. I mean, it, I kind of scratched the surface. When I look there, I'm like, oh no, this is like a 20, 30 year dedication thing to tr- really try and get it done properly. So it gave me another level of, of respect, I think, for the, um, you know, the top authors. But I really enjoyed the process. It was good. Actually, I spent a lot of time reading as a kid, and that was what helped me, yeah. Well, Mark, we focused on the military aspects today, part of the nature of this show, but in our marketing of the book, we bang on about it it being a resilience memoir, and it really is that. It covers in great depth your life in the SAS, as per the subtitle, but there's also a very solid chunk of the book that is your life after. It's packed with lessons of resilience and details your journey and wisdom gained from transition out of military, the failures, the successes, the highs and lows, and there's a lot more substance there readers can enjoy. It's not just an SAS expose book. There's a lot more of your own personal journey there. And I actually credit you and Pam McMillan with this because when we originally did the proposal, when I submitted to you, I was trying to say, you know, I think there's a lot of military books there, but I would like to add layers to this that make it less about the military, more about the experience of combat, what that does to people and how you can 
I guess, come out of it because that has applications well beyond just a military genre, I guess. To your credit, you kept, I guess you kept me on that track as well. So I think the way it's been marketed and pushed is very much around that, you know, this isn't just a military expose. It is, it does have more layers and more depth than things I think that could help more broadly. So yeah, I think that was a good push. I like to think the greatest contribution I made to the book was small but important in that renaming <laughs> it from your original exactly. submission of- yeah. I submitted it in the proposal as Ivy Wars, which Alex then changed to uh, Survivor, which I loved. I always wanted a one word thing and that made a lot of sense. I wanted my cover to mimic, <laughs> it was a Captain Kirk, <laughs> William Shatner's yes, uh, book cover, yes. but yeah, we, we did a different cover and I think that worked out really well. Well, Mark, as people listen to this, Survivor Life in the SAS is out now in print ebook and audiobook narrated by yourself as well I might quickly add I'm sure that was a fun experience for you as well pouring over the pages and reading it out loud and going oh good there's no typos in here that's good that was a long haul that was harder than I thought but good to go back through it in detail and read the whole thing and you know I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks myself but a lot of people have said hey we love it when the author is telling their story again so yeah yeah so if you're a podcast listener enjoying listening to Mark and I chat now you can listen to him narrate his entire audiobook and then go buy a print copy for him to sign when you um, accost him in the streets exactly so I guess, Mark, my last question for you today is what do you want readers to take away from Survivor after they turn the final page or listen to you narrate the final word? The big one is that it doesn't matter who you are in life. You might be an elite soldier or a painter. You're going to have some sort of tragedy hit you in life. It doesn't matter what it is, but you do have choice about how you respond to it. I think that is exciting because that opens up a whole range of possibilities. And I think you can use kind of tragedies or tough patches to reorganize your life and pivot and do new things and, and try things that can actually grow you as well. So that's what I've tried to do. I've done it well in some cases, I've done it badly in others. And I think that just doing it is an end in itself. So if that's the one thing you take away, I think that's that's a good lesson. Well, Mark, it has been a great pleasure chatting with you on mic again today. And just looking back to the first time we spoke on mic, it's been quite a journey since then. And I have loved that just from our first meeting and chat to, you know, some casual conversations about a book to then ramping that up and then working with you on that for the past year plus has been a, a real treat. And this is a really, it's not just a fun book to work on. It's a really important book to work on. So thank you for working with me and Pam McMillan on it, but thank you for speaking with me and sharing your story to Australia. Great. And we, we did it all during a lockdown, so it's been even it's been even more special. Absolutely. Well, we can go celebrate with a COVID-safe beer outside, I think. Done. More of that music in just a moment. You can find Mark Wales on Instagram at mark.a.wales for more, and his website is markwales.com.au. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTLPod, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Also, be sure to listen to Mark's first appearance on this show back in Season 2. They were building positions in there for a fight. And so in that battle, one of our guys was shot and killed. And in season four, have a listen to my conversation with Mark's wife in the bonus episode, The Partners, Samantha Gash. There's times when Mark will wake up from a sleep and then he'll just say, I had a terrible nightmare. And he'll either be about something that did happen or about a fear of what might have happened when he was out there. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions.
Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, The Hell Beyond by The Externals, a track inspired by this podcast. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget. A man sure walks slow, mighty step be your last. It can steal the mind quickly, and it can harden your heart. And you yearn for your family, and you long for your wife, and all that you're missing from a wonderful life. But out here I'm a soldier and a long way from home And I gave up those comforts a long time ago Out here in the dirt and the heat and the dry There's no time for nostalgia, less acquaintance of mine Just then I looked round and I caught Rowdy's eyes And it snapped me back quicker than he raised up his size He squeezed up some rounds from behind a mud wall As I dived to me guts and I started to crawl Well I've tried to forget how I try But I'll never forget how the fear stole my mind The cornfields erupted She'd scared with self-doubt My throat was bone dry And me heart filled me mouth As the shots cracked around us I remember the high But it wasn't excitement I was just terrified The steel tore through clothing Mud walls, trees and flesh As I emptied my bag Towards nothing at best And as I crawled forward And I looked through me sights I turned and saw Rowdy Give a wink and a smile shouted with me as he sprung to his feet with his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt all around him like rain on a pond as he made his way into the hell just beyond well I've tried to forget how I've tried but it's hard to Machine guns and fire I remember the dust How the grip cut the eyes We battled and fought Through the streets, maze and mud And when I reached Rowdy He was covered in blood I crawled up beside him And I laid by his side Not sure it was sweat or tears in his eyes He grabbed for my hand And he winced through a smile As the din all around him Fell silent and quiet Made in a bag as I licked at a rolly and we passed round a drag. We picked up and moved. We were dog tired and beat. We were the dreaming awake and the
sat with a beer, looking over the dash, and I drank and I pondered the shit day we'd had, but nothing like rowdy, so I raised up my glass, and I whispered to old mate it was over too far.